and welcome to Vertiguys. I'm Eric. I'm Sean. And we are the Vertiguys. We are here to check out the dark side of DC. By recapping and reviewing Vertigo comics, starting with the big three, Sandman, Hellblazer, Preacher. Today we are launching into some Preacher, and we are back in regular issues of Preacher. It's been a little while. Yeah, this is the first time I've reviewed a Preacher comic book in three months. Yeah, our read order had taken a break to go through the backstories of Arseface and Jody. We're back in the main series now, and we're getting a bit of a gear shift, a bit of a downshift for Preacher. Almost a genre change, away from the uh, sort of epic high Preacher of the War in the Sun, down to something rather different. And I think that Jesse actually explicitly makes that downshift comparison in this comic book that you just made. We're not going to see Cassidy and Tulip for a while. We're going to be in kind of a genre exercise here with Jesse as our sole lead character, if not the sole main character. Yeah, and the cover of Preacher number 41, it kind of looks like a Hardy Boys book. He's... (laughs) Because he's about to stumble on something, yeah. Yeah, he's like stumbling through the woods at night, and we see a sign that says Salvation, Texas, population 1626. Not a lot of people. And there's a big sheriff badge in the background, too. Yeah, he is, of course, with his dog Skeeter, and he's got his new costume with the eye patch and the gold collar tips. This is Preacher number 41, The Man from God Knows Where, written by Garth Ennis, art by Steve Dillon, colors by Pamela Rambo, and a cover by Glenn Fabry. And that's the creative team for all three of the issues that we're covering today. That's right. Yeah, so we open, we're told that it's six months later, that is six months since Jesse stumbled upon Cassidy and Tulip, now apparently a couple in, was it Dallas? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, since, since he saw them kissing and... Uh, Bailed out. And passed out, yeah. So we see a pier and a stormy sea. In the midst of a raging storm, we see Jesse walk out to the end of this dock. Comes a time, Skeeter old boy, when you just plain run out of America. The next page is the title page. Jesse and Skeeter are looking out over a tumultuous ocean, and we get the title, The Man from God Knows Where. And we are going to come back to this scene in about six issues. Yeah, and then we cut back to six months earlier. Jesse, looking bummed out, is driving a white pickup truck, sort of an antique pickup truck, against a yellow sky. Yeah, in the opening scene, his hair had been cut short. Now it's long again, the way we remember it. So we start at the end of this story, and it sounds like a time skip until we jump back six months and are now going to cover the entire time skip. This is like the fourth and fifth Game of Thrones books, where the fourth and fifth Game of Thrones books cover a bunch of stuff that was kind of supposed to happen during a time skip, but Martin decided to skip the time skip and just write those stories. Jesse drives into Salvation, Texas. Population 1626. Same info, although the sign in this panel is much more modern than the sort of cheap wooden sign that Link would cut down that we saw on the cover. Right. He pulls up next to a place called Jody's Bar and Grill. J-O-D-I-E. Yeah, not spelled the same way as the Jody that we know. And lets Skeeter out of the truck, and they go in. Coming. Woof! (laughs) Thanks for covering that. Yeah. Jesse orders a Lone Star and a shot. Yeah, so he's like, he's looking pretty impressive. The way that he looks in this top panel here, you know, he's sort of broad-shouldered and muscular. And my thought was like, who sees a guy who looks like that with a fucking eye patch walk into a bar and decide, yeah, I'm gonna fuck with this dude? (laughs) The adage is, 
you should see the other guy. But this guy has come out on top of a fight so bad that you lose an eye in it. Right. Okay, so this young guy starts making fun of him for the eye patch, saying he should have a parrot instead of a dog, because he's a pirate. I like Jesse's response here, though. Shouldn't you have a hand up your ass? Huh? I always heard Miss Piggy had a hand up her ass. And, like, it's funny because this guy's friends try to stop him, too. They're like, dude, no. (laughs) Yeah, they have better judgment. This guy gets in Jesse's face. Jesse grabs him by the back of the head, stops an inch short of slamming his face down on the bar. That could have been your face. But today's Christmas. He lets the guy go. The guy walks sheepishly back to his friends at the bar. Jesse gets an approving glance from an old man on the other side of the bar. Right? Huh. He was just lucky. Man, that guy could have kicked your ass clear across the state line. Jesse walks out of the bar, and he hears somebody shouting, Hey, Cyclops! But they are surprisingly not shouting at him, or at X-Man Scott Summers. No, instead, they are shouting at a character we recognize. This is a grown-up version of Lori, Billy Bob's sister, who he planned on marrying. That's right, Jesse recognizes her. Lori? comes up behind these four guys who are picking on her. The fuck do you want? Yeah, so he's encountered two sets of shitheads in 15 minutes. Salvation, Texas is not a great town. (laughs) (laughs) It's not a great town for judgment, certainly, as we smash cut to Jesse standing beside these four men, all clutching their bloody noses and injured bollocks. Right. Is it worth noting that they're all wearing identical coveralls as well? Yeah, that's a good point. That's going to come back. So far, Salvation Texas has neither judgment, nor fighting capability, nor fashion. These four guys are all taking turns apologizing to Lori. Jesse has obviously just taught them a lesson. Right. He calls her by her name, and she asks if she knows him. Long time ago you did. Jesse Custer. Your brother Billy Bob's friend, when we were kids. She doesn't recognize him. I mean, you look completely different. You're like a new man. I mean, you were tall even then, well over six feet, and you were so good-looking. And your eyes used to be brown, didn't they? She says as we get a close-up on Jesse's face with his deep brown eyes. And your hair, what happened to all that beautiful shiny black hair you had? He also has that still. Yeah, she doesn't recognize him. He immediately thinks it's the missing eye, and it turns out that's not it at all. Anyway, he gives her a ride home because he's a gentleman. And as they drive off, we can see the sheriff and a deputy, who is a young black woman, watching this happen. She wants to arrest Jesse for pummeling four losers in the street. We can't just stand by. He beat the hell out of them right in the street. Didn't he, though? As he passes by, he gives her a respectful ma'am, which causes her to go, hmm. Lori's house, she is saying as they walk up how she doesn't blame Jesse for what happened to Billy Bob. Now, you want to recap what happened to Billy Bob? I mean, I don't remember it in too much detail, except that Grandma or Jody decided to kill him to teach Jesse a lesson. Yeah, basically he and Jesse were good friends, which meant he was over at the house in Angelville, which meant he got killed. Right. Not long after Jesse left, Lori says she left home to go to college. She couldn't get in because of her eye. She has one eye in the center of her face. It's kind of offset to the right, actually. I think it's drawn more realistically here than it was back in the Angelville arc. Mm. She is, as the men mentioned, monocular. Anyway, she couldn't get into college because of the eye, but she taught herself from books, and she says Jody helped her with the tests. Speaking of, 
God damn it, Lorena. You ever gonna learn any consideration for my fucking hangover? So, for a minute, I wondered who Lorena was, but I guess Lori is Lorena. Yeah. And this is our introduction to Jody with an IE. Yeah, she's a tough-looking, white-haired woman with only one arm. Yeah, she has long white hair tucked back in a ponytail. She's kind of the spitting image of Jody, except for being female. Interesting. We also see she has a scar across the left side of her head running back into the hairline. Jesse says, Evening, ma'am. My, such manners. A regular handsome stranger. Some of those awful Quincannon men were giving me trouble again, Jody. Jesse saved me. He really taught them a lesson, honestly. Knight in shining armor, too. Well, I guess that deserves a drink. So she invites him back into the den to pour them both drinks, and he comments that she has a lot of nice things, including a very good collection of books. Yeah, he's impressed by her library. Visible here we see Nick Hornby's fever pitch, which would have been pretty recent, as well as a history of the Third Reich, which is foreshadowing. Yeah, there's also a book of Andrew Wyeth. Yeah. And Jesse calls out Catch-22. English edition. Got some good line drawings in it. How'd you lose the eye, stranger? Tell you the truth, I don't rightly know. Kind of careless with your body parts, ain't you? Makes two of us. Hell, I know exactly what happened to that, Jody says, looking at the missing arm. Goddamn gator bit it off in the swamp. Jody. Hey, that place on the main street yours? Boy behind the bar calls fellas dude without checking if they object or not? Right, the guy uses dude, as a 90s kid would, to Jesse, who grew up in Texas on cowboy movies. I guess it still means greenhorn. Oh, okay. I didn't think of it that way. I just thought that he's old You just think that he doesn't like being called... Yeah. Being called bro. Yeah. Or dude. Yeah. You remember there's that video of a fucking, like, cop going totally berserk because a kid calls him dude? No, I've never seen that. Okay. Well, it's a thing you can find on YouTube. Anyway, yeah, it is Jody's bar, and she runs it, and Lori does the books. She's a mathematical genius. Jesse mentions how he grew up with Lori, but she didn't recognize him. Jody explains that's because of Lori's eye condition. As Lori comes back into the room, we see now what Lori sees when she looks at Jesse and Jody. A bag of fertilizer and a giant chicken. <laughs> it's labeled. It says, O'Clarity's Fertilizer. You might think it would say, you know, Custer's, but never mind. That would be too easy. That's not how face blindness works, but let's move on. Right. We cut to Jesse lying in his bed in the guest room. He remembers the war in the sun, and he says, then what? But when he tries to think about what happened next, he just imagines Cassidy and Tulip together. They're sort of giving him mean looks here. And he shuts his eyes tight and says, no. So he can't remember what happened to him because it hurts too much to try. Yeah, and specifically, he can't remember what happened to him right after he fell out of the plane. You know... I kind of thought that when he left them alone in Dallas, Jesse had decided they were happy without him, but he's not happy for them. He's clearly pretty angry about the whole thing. And plus, in his memory, Tulip looks pretty haggard. He really should have jumped in. He should have said something. It was kind of not cool of him to just get pissy and walk off and build a life somewhere else. You think he should have known that Tulip was in distress? I mean, from the way she looks in this panel, I think he might have drawn that conclusion. But in addition to that, he really should have just trusted her enough to ask her what was going on. Yeah, I don't know. He saw the two of them kissing. It's easy to take out of context. True. If he had witnessed any other 
you know, four seconds of their interactions, I think he might have known that something was off. But that's the point. Like, he showed up at exactly the wrong moment. Yeah, I guess. I mean, I don't really fault the comic for doing, like, third act of a romantic comedy misunderstanding, but I kind of fault Jesse for not being smarter than that. Well, fair enough. So it's first thing in the morning, but he starts pouring himself a drink. And his mentor-slash-spirit animal, <laughs> John Wayne, appears. Ain't about to go quitting on me, are you, Pilgrim? Jesse says he's not quitting, sarcastically. He can't keep doing this, he says, when there's so much he doesn't know. Like, how he ended up getting fucked so bad by the people he loved the most. Cass, goddammit, I saved his ass and he saved mine twice each easy. How the hell'd he do something like that? He'd have burned up like a fucking crispy critter I hadn't stopped him. And Tulip, Jesus, Tulip, I don't even want to think. I feel like puking, I swear to God. Is this what I get? Try to be a good guy? Try to do right by folks? Is this my fucking reward? Well, now, Pilgrim, I don't recall nobody saying nothing about no reward. Point. Yeah, there is no reward for being a good person. You just do it because there's too many of the other kind. Right. Yeah, this is a good moment. Jesse remembering that he's doing the right thing because it's the right thing. Aw, oh, fuck this self-pity and bullshit. I don't know. Could be all I needs to shift down a gear. So we cut back to Jody's bar. We see three rednecks telling Mexican jokes while sitting at a table with a Mexican guy named Hector. Jesse wonders why he's going to sit there and take that. He asks Jody. I'm talking about the female Jody here. Jody says essentially because those three are his only friends, and they're pretty good to him most of the time. Hell, sometimes it's even his turn to go home with Cora. Lucky dog, says Jesse sarcastically. Cora is a red-faced and chubby woman, although not enormously obese. Right. And she has sort of a... A loud guffaw, as we can see in the same panel as he says that. Oh, do you think that's what he's commenting on? Yeah, I think that laugh is meant to be seen as unattractive here. I see. Okay. Jody comments on Jesse's fuck communism lighter as he lights her cigarette, before adding, This around here, that's progress. He was black, he wouldn't even be in here. She quickly clarifies that she allows black folks in her bar, of course, but they mostly keep to their own side of salvation, a place called John's Hollow. I prefer to judge people by what's in them, not how they look. My halo is in the mail, in case you were wondering. Yeah, she also talks about the magnetic pull of the town of Salvation, which is something we're going to hear about again. It's the kind of town that people have trouble escaping from, if they're from there. Yeah, it's a little town, nothing going on, but if you don't get out by a certain age, you probably won't. And then they talk about the Quincannon assholes. The fact that they're always coming into town and blowing off steam by wrecking shit and hassling people. That's going to be pretty important. These are the guys who are picking on Lori, the meat factory workers that Jesse beat up yesterday. Meat factory sounds weird. It's a meat packing plant. Okay, fair enough. Meat factory? <laughs> it's an automated facility that produces meat, okay? <laughs> it converts animals into meat. <laughs> Gross. <laughs> I mean, we eat it, but... <laughs> you don't want to see the sausage being made. No. Or the steaks. Goddamn worthless trash picking on the girl like that. I should have stuck around and wailed on him some more. Oh, I declare. Just can't stand seeing a woman in pain, hmm? Little weakness of mine. What was that you were saying about halos? You can't change things. You can watch over them, maybe stop them getting worse. But nobody's trying to save the world, stranger. Nobody's dumb enough. Right, she explains that even if she were to intervene on Hector's behalf, 
he wouldn't thank her for it because she'd be coming between him and the only friends he's got. And if she were to throw the whole bar out, they'd just go somewhere else and act the same way. Right. We cut to another scene. Jesse is now sitting out on the porch. I can't tell if it's of his place or the bar. I believe this is meant to be outside Jody's bar. So the sheriff comes up. The sheriff we met a couple scenes ago. His name is Jim Bewley. Yeah, he introduces himself, and he wastes no time offering Jesse a job. Right, he saw the fight, but he's not here to arrest Jesse. He's impressed with him. See, the trouble is, there's really only me to keep a lid on things, you know? And, well, I ain't as sprightly as I once was. Jesse remembers that he had a deputy with him this afternoon, Cindy Daggett. Yeah, Bewley explains that he doesn't consider Cindy to be good for much. She's just there to keep the black folks in town happy. Jesse asks if they ever have any clan trouble. Damn, no. We never had anything like that around here, not while I've been sheriff. I mean, in the old days, sure, but that's true of everywhere, ain't it? Let's be sure we're on the same page here, Mr. Custer. I'm talking about a little fart of a town and some bad boys need slapping down, and a sheriff could use some help doing it. Nothing more. So he asks if Jesse would be interested in being his deputy, and Jesse says, No, but I'll be your goddamn sheriff. And that brings us to the end of issue 41. Hey, it's your turn to talk, and that means you get the privilege of telling us about the cover of Preacher number 42. (laughs) Alright, Preacher number 42, The Meat Man Cometh. We have touched upon the credits, and we will now touch upon the cover by Glenn Fabry. Please don't talk about touching upon things. (laughs) No touching, (laughs) alright? Sorry, I still talk like I'm writing 400-level English papers. (laughs) Okay, this is a short... Bald man, this is Odin Quincannon, who we have not seen yet. He is standing in his boxers in a room full of hanging sides of meat. Indeed! And when I say in his boxers, he's also wearing rather nice leather shoes and... What are these called? Braces? Yeah, braces. The little sock suspenders. Right, little sock suspenders. This cross-gartering. So we open on the Quincannon meatpacking plant. We see... Workers in all stages of slaughtering and butchering animals. Yeah, a lot of the gory details of meat preparation. We also see that they're just dumping blood straight into the river. Yeah, yeah. Not an ethically run factory. And as we're seeing all this, we're hearing the sexy talk of Mr. Odin Quincannon. Right, somebody giving fairly explicit sexual instructions. Work the shaft! Work the shaft! Cradle the balls. Cradle the balls. Now, say the name. Say the name. Morning, boys, he says as he comes out of his secret little room. Morning, Mr. Quincannon. And he emerges in his boxer shorts and covered with blood. Right. Yeah, I didn't have the benefit of the voice acting when I read it. That is uncomfortable. (laughs) Yeah, something's not right there. There's these two unsettled-looking guards standing watch outside his mystery room. And it's going to be a long while before we figure out exactly what's going on in there, but it's not pleasant. One of them is wearing a tan suit with a white tie. A real southern gentleman. Ah, okay. So, we cut back to Salvation, where we see that now former sheriff, Jim Bewley, is basically handing over the job to Jesse, lock, stock, and barrel. Ain't there going to be an election? Oh, I'm sure they'll get around to it eventually. They did with me. Now, here we are. Office, cruiser, 
Gun rack, file cabinet, handing over the key ring. He thinks Jesse's going to do just fine, and he takes off in a packed car. As Jesse is standing there watching him go, the same old man who raised a glass to Jesse in the previous issue passes by and says, Good morning, Sheriff. Huh? Oh, morning. Yeah, the whole thing has a, a little bit of a droopy dog air to it. He's just, like, bolted instantly. Bewley not only did not hesitate to hand over the job of Sheriff, he was positively salivating at the possibility. Right, uh, more on that later. Jody starts teasing him. Tradition demands you start cleaning this place up. Run the bad guys out of town on a rail. Fall in love with the town beauty. Acquire a drunken but amusing sidekick. Yeah, Ennis is basically calling out the genre exercise here. Preacher is always kind of a modern western, but this is taking it more literally than usual. Jesse has basically walked into the plot of a western, and they're just lampshading it now. He walks into the office and sees Cindy, but she insists, Deputy Daggett, your office is through here. Yeah, he'd like the tour, but she mentions all the work she has to get through today. She's apparently stuck with the secretarial duties. Yeah, and she's also kind of giving him the cold shoulder. Yeah. She doesn't like the way that he's just assumed the job. And we got a secretary for that? No, we've got me, apparently. Well, that's no good. You're a law officer. You ain't got time for this bullshit. Hire a secretary. Take it out of my salary. Mind if I smoke? Uh, no. And it's at this point that Odin Quincannon arrives in a white limousine. Yeah, and again, Odin Quincannon is a short, bald guy. He is now wearing a bolo tie and gold collar tips. And we cannot see his eyes behind his glasses, just crazy swirls. Odin Quincan, why don't you have your girl here make some coffee and me and you can have a little talk? Ever heard of knocking? Heh, <laughs> once. So he doesn't knock. He refers to Cindy as your girl. Yeah, he's quite rude. I want to point out here that as soon as he sits down, Jesse says, You need a cushion? Commenting on his shortness. Which, okay, he's already been kind of rude. But I feel like the comic book is telling us that, like, shortness is a physical attribute that it's okay to be rude about. Hmm, okay, yeah. I mean, there's a certain level of beauty equals goodness going on in this comic book. Mm -hmm. Bad guys are usually sort of physically deformed in some way. Yeah, Hair Star, who we're not going to see in this story arc, being one of the prime examples. Yeah, Hair Star, who undergoes a series of comically horrible disfigurements. Right. Quincannon instructs Jesse on what the job of Salvation Sheriff means. Keep things quiet, look the other way when the meatpacking plant men get rowdy, or the plant ignores safety regulations. And as long as he does, he'll see Quincannon's generosity. We cut to Quincannon flying through the window. He doesn't seem to be really hurt, which wouldn't happen. <laughs> it's, it's really cartoonish. He's, he's more than anything just humiliated. Son of a bitch! He's 75 years old, says Quincannon's southern gentleman bodyguard. That's okay. I hit young fucks, too, Jesse says and punches him in the face. What the fuck, says the other bodyguard, pulling a gun. He aims it at Jesse. Jesse points out that the safety's on. Unclear if he's telling the truth, but it distracts the guy long enough for Jesse to kick him in the pills and put his face through the car window. Stop this at once! At this point, a woman named Miss Oatlash steps in. She is Quinn Cannon's lawyer. She's very pale with a sort of a severe school marm general dress and demeanor. She intends to make him face the legal consequences of this brawl, but Quinn Cannon calls her off. He's mine! Mine! And we're gonna do him my way! 
Sir, you really shouldn't say those things. Shut up, damn you! Odin Quinn Cannon says what he likes! You're fucking dead, Custer! You hear me? Jesse tells them to get out. They're not welcome in Salvation anymore, and the law isn't for sale. I hate a fella talks about himself in the third person. Incidentally, just having been punched out the window, Quincannon has his glasses off, and we see his eyes on this page for possibly the only time. They're normal. Yeah. Unlike someone else I can think of, who we hardly ever see without glasses. Dun dun dun! Back in Jody's bar, Jesse compliments the cheeseburger. Well, thank you. I do a pretty good Szechuan lobster stir-fry with chili sauce, too, but there's not a lot of call for that around here. You're quite a worker yourself, aren't you, stranger? I saw what happened to Quinn Cannon and his boys. Short, sharp shock. Get some used to the new regime. Anyhow, they were nothing. I've had pukes like that on my days off from kicking ass. That's basically what this whole story arc is, is this day off from kicking ass. Mm-hmm. Do you mind me asking what the hell you think you're doing here exactly? Jesse explains about the job he has to do, how he needs to figure things out before he can get back to it. This town presents an opportunity for him to make himself useful while he figures that out. I see. And is this how you usually kill time, stranger? Wouldn't want folks thinking I was some kind of freeloader, now would I? And you can call me Jesse. Oh, I think I like stranger just fine. Now we cut to... Jesse is out in the woods, having target practice with Cindy. And they chat about Jim Bewley. He was a yes-man, she says, paid off by Quinn Cannon. Still, he kept the peace and he was lenient on first offenders. But there was something else about him that bothered her. I mean, even in John's Hollow, where I grew up, we'd drive over there and he'd do a real good job pouring oil on troubled waters, and then on the way home with me, right beside him in the car, he'd say, maybe now them N-words will behave themselves. Only she didn't say N-words. So, what was his deal with Quinn Cannon, exactly? Just to ignore the plant workers when they cause trouble in town, which they do plenty of. Make sure they don't have to go to court. They ain't even local. They moved down from Houston, most of them. All Bewley had to do was look the other way, which was good, because that's all folks in Salvation ever do, really. She explains, as we've heard before, that this is the kind of place, if you ain't left by the time you're 25, you're stuck. If you let yourself get stuck, you're probably the kind of person who will look the other way if it makes life easier on you. That include you, Deputy Daggett? Oh, you can call me Cindy, if you like. So he's impressed her enough in the last few pages that she's now willing to let him use her first name. Yeah, and Jesse didn't move past Deputy Daggett without her permission. They talk a bit about the practice that they're doing. She apparently practices with her gun a lot. Yet, when Jesse tries, his grouping is even tighter. Oh, you're right. His grouping is even tighter. I thought he missed it entirely, because he has only one eye. And those were her bullet holes, but no. Yeah, even with one eye. Most of his shots are dead center. Jesus Christ, who the hell taught you to shoot? Sadistic man, man, I used to know. Long story. Have we ever really seen Jesse use a gun? No, we really don't. Yeah. Well, he, he mostly fights people with his fists, and I thought now that he had one eye, that would be, like, exclusively what he did. But no, apparently he can still use a gun. Yeah, his depth perception doesn't seem to have been significantly impaired. At the meatpacking plant, Quinn Cannon is explaining his theory to Miss Oatlash about how all of this is Jim Bewley's fault. Little pig fucker went and grew himself a conscience, that's what he did. Old Odin never should have trusted that cocksucker, no sir. Wouldn't look you in the eyes, see that? How he would never look you in the eyes? Quinn Cannon, whose eyes cannot be seen, hates a fellow who won't look you in the eye. Interesting, yeah. He says that Bewley couldn't turn down all the money he was giving him, but because he grew a conscience, he found someone who would. Right. He asks Miss Oatlash to investigate Jesse Custer, 
while he picks up the phone to deal with Bewley himself. Meanwhile, at Lori and Jody's house, Jesse is moving out. Yeah, he's planning to stay in the back room of the sheriff's office for a while. But he asks Lori, what's Jody's story? She hasn't had it easy, I'll tell you that. When I met her, she'd only just gotten out of a mental institution. She told me she was found in the swamps years ago, a little bit east of here. She'd lost her arm and she was raving, completely crazy. All she knew was her name. She was shouting it over and over. Jody! 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 She doesn't know what happened before that, or much after it either. She's got all these gaps. She still forgets things. I think that's why she was in the institution. Jesse comments that you can tell she's smart, sophisticated, came from an education. Something just doesn't add up. Lori says she likes Jesse, though. Even though she'd never say so, she keeps up a tough front. Hmm. East of here, you said. He's starting to put it together. Outside of town. Night. The sheriff's deputy pulls over Jim Bewley and shoots him dead through the car window. Before he reporting to someone that it's done, sir. So yeah, Bewley just got assassinated. This is important because Quint Cannon hadn't really done anything villainous yet. He just showed up and announced he would be the villain. Yeah, I guess that's true. This is really the first time we see him cross the moral event horizon. You know, we saw his guys be jerks picking on Laurie and he wants the sheriff to look the other way. That's corrupt and jerk behavior and definitely not cool, but it's not exactly evil. This is the first really horrifically evil thing that he's done. Right. Back at Jody's bar and grill, Jesse's there after hours. Jody is talking about how nobody ever stood up to that little nose-pick Quincannon before, much less threw him through a window. I hope you remember what I said about saving the world. But Jesse isn't replying. He's just staring at her. What are you... He stands up, leans in close. Yeah, it's a full-page splash of the two of them as he looks at her intently and asks, Mom? And that's the end of that issue. Oh, man. That was a bombshell. I guess he ended up in the right town after all. <laughs> a fortuitous coincidence. Although, as they sort of implied, they're not actually that far from Angelville. Now... As we remember from his origin story, Jesse's mom came from this horrible place, Angelville. She was raised by an evil super-Christian family there, and every time she tried to get away, they would drag her back. Well, once Jesse was born, they basically considered her purpose fulfilled, and when she crossed them one more time, they had her dragged out in the swamp and shot. Exactly. This is the but first time we're hearing that Christina Langell is still alive. Preacher number 43, Christina's World. That is the name of a painting by Andrew Wyeth. We mentioned it on the podcast before when Jesse found it in the Museum of Modern Art in New York. And the cover of this issue is an homage, a sort of preacherfied version of that painting. Yeah, a woman, Christina, seen from the back sitting some ways away from a sort of magnificent southern gothic old house with the addition of Burnt crosses visible on the lawn, and Grandma Jody and T.C. on the porch. T.C. had a comic book come out this week. What? Top Cat. <laughs> <laughs> there was a new Top Cat comic book this week. Yeah, I tell you, I'd much rather be reading about Top Cat than that guy. I think it was Superman Top Cat. <laughs> okay. We open in flashback on the swamp on the border between Louisiana and Texas. What about Jesse? Young Christina is asking. Boy, ain't no concern of yours no more. He's with us now. We gonna make what we can of him. That's Jody replying. 
Yeah, this is Christina and Jody walking to the dock so he can kill her. And the notion of Jody making what he can of Jesse visibly troubles Christina. What the hell do you care anyhow? I've seen how you are. All you do is sit around pining for your soldier boy. He kicked your ass quick enough, you two-bit boot boy. He beat you down like the trash you are. That he did. But I ain't the one lying moldering under George Willard's cornfield, am I? Make your peace, girl. You know what my husband thought of you, Jody? What he said to me about you? Huh. He said you were big and strong and mean as hell. But you were always slow. She turns and kicks him in the balls. He gets off a shot which grazes the side of her head. She uh, falls into the water. He fires into the water after her and sees a plume of blood. And I guess he figures the job's done? Cutting back to today, Jesse hugs a crying Jody slash Christina in the bar. And we get the title, Christina's World. How did you know? She asks. He says he didn't, just guessed based on a few things. She didn't know anything until he said it. Jesus, this is going to take some explaining, and I will. I promise I will. But will you just hold me tight a little while longer? Sure, Mom. Sure. And they hug again. Jody shot me, and I went into the swamp. They're now in her den, surrounded by her books and having drinks. I wasn't dead, but I didn't know who I was. I touched the pain in my head because I no longer knew I shouldn't, and my fingers went in and something soft yielded, and I fell down screaming with knives behind my eyes. But when I woke up, I did it again because I couldn't remember not to anymore. I don't know how long I was in there or how far I went, but I know how I remembered. And we now cut to the swamp in flashback, and sure enough, just like she said, she's bit by a goddamn gator. Yeah, gator comes up, bites off her left arm. I wonder if that's Waylon. Oh, Waylon the gator? Yeah, could be, could be. A few hunters hear her screams and come running. They scare the gator off, and one, who was an army medic in Nam, manages to pinch off the artery and stop the bleeding from her arm. When one of them leans over her, she sees the face of Jody and shouts his name, which they must have concluded was hers. I didn't speak again for ten years. Yeah, so this is interesting. The way that her story involves, like, good men, I think is interesting. It's an example of, like, the good side of traditional masculinity. Right, yeah, these guys reacted instantly when they thought somebody needed help and they had the skills to do it. Yeah, and as a matter of fact, one of them had the skills because he fought in Nam. Right. They got her to a hospital, and she ended up in a hospital where no one knew who she was, and eventually ended up in a mental institution. Eventually a shrink took a look at me and not one of them got shit. So they stuck me in the bin with the name of the fucker who wrecked our lives. It took her years to rebuild herself, she says. When she got out of the mental institution, she happened upon Lori and vaguely remembered someone like her, a little boy, Billy Bob. It happened the first time like it would again and again and again. One of the blanks got filled in. When she remembered Billy Bob, she remembered Jesse, just for a second, and then it fled. But Lori could see that she was distressed and asked if she was okay. She says that whenever she tried to remember where she came from, she just remembered that it was something bad and it hurt too much to try and remember. We see an image here of the burning crosses, Jody, TC, and Grandma. Right. She got back bits and pieces of who she was over the years with Lori, including the fact that she was willing to stand up to people, because she had to on Lori's behalf. She knew there was something inside her that destroyed her life, and on the occasions that she remembered it, she let it go, afraid to touch it. She even sometimes remembered Angelville well enough to know where it was, to start going back for Jesse. Yeah, but if she ever did that, she'd just forget again. On the way, her mind would go blank, and she'd find herself on the road with 
no memory of where she was going. And she just ended up right back in salvation. Well, here's to the man who thought to bottle this stuff, hmm? She says, holding up a glass of whiskey. The only way she could make sense of her life was to concentrate on being herself. And that's what she was doing right up until the moment Jessie found her. She swears apologetically to Jessie that she tried, she really tried to go back for him. And he reassures her that he was long gone by then. Oh God, that place you were, what were you, ten? And that place and those monsters, that vicious old... They're gone, Mom. I went back. I killed them. I choked the life out of Jody and burned the damn house down. Grandma went up with it. They're in hell. Good boy. Good boy. And now they have a little conversation about Andrew Wyeth. Say, you know what? I saw the picture. Hmm? The Wyeth, you remember. They got the original in the Museum of Modern Art in New York. It was beautiful, Mom. Colors were so vivid, more than any book or print could reproduce. It was about the saddest thing I ever did see. So you remembered. Used to stare at it for hours, but I never did know why at the time. It wasn't till the museum that I figured it out. I found it in a book in that huge library in Angelville. I was about twelve, just starting to understand that things would never change for me, and I read about the picture. And my God, I thought, my God, somebody's painted my life. The girl in the picture, she explains, was a cousin of Andrew Wyeth, who suffered from polio. That image, her at the edge of a field looking back on the house, was the farthest she could ever get from home. Always in view of the house, it centered her world. She couldn't escape it. It reached out and brought her back, no matter what. And that was this Christina's life as well. The house in Angelville would always drag her back if she tried to get away from it. It was the center of her life. Jessie reaches out, takes the book, and closes it. That part of her life is behind her now. All right. Lori comes down the stairs, and Christina makes introductions. There's something I have to tell you. Hell, there's a lot. Jody isn't my real name. It's not? No. It's Christina. Christina Custer. This is my son. Custer's dead, Miss Oatlash says in Quinn Cannon's office. Right, she has discovered that Jesse's death has been faked for him by Detective John Toole way back in, like, Preacher number 7. Well, she doesn't know it's faked. She just knows that he's officially dead. I guess she knows it's fake because they saw him. <laughs> they know it's fake because he's alive! Well, but they don't know that somebody faked his death. Jesse might have assumed the identity of a dead man. That is true. That is a possibility. She recites a bunch of events that we already know about. The church fire in Anvil, the massacre of deputies by the Saint of Killers, although people have blamed Jesse for that, and the massacre at a trucker bar. Custer's body, she says, was pulled out of a river in New York City. At this point, Quinn Cannon goes on a bit of a tangential gripe. Where'd you get this here information, anyhow? Yeah, he doesn't approve of her getting information from a contact who went to Yale with her. He doesn't need some fancy education, he says. He got where he is all by himself on hard work alone. We oh. didn't attend law school together, sir. We used to commit acts of extreme sexual deviancy together in a motel room in Austin. That's where I know him from. Oh, well... So Custer's officially dead, huh? Got no kin, no past worth talking about? Well, I guess there ain't nobody gonna miss him then, is there? Jesse and Jody are now continuing their conversation on the front steps of Jody's bar. She's gonna keep the sign, even though she's changing her name. They ask each other what's next. Jesse says he's not leaving town until he settles this thing with Quincannon. Nobody's talking about Bewley's death. I guess it was far enough outside of town that they don't know about it. Yeah, and the old guy who keeps... Waving at Jesse shows up, we find out that his name is Gunther. Right, and he and Jody seem to be getting on fairly well, friends at least. 
He lives on Hollow Road, German originally, but he's been here as long as anyone can remember. Must be pushing 70 by now. Still looks pretty frisky to me, though. Mom! What? Well, I mean, you know. No what? Uh, look, you can't talk about stuff like that to, you know, with... Oh, what, I've got to clean up my act now? I'm your mom? This is a pretty good panel of them both smiling bemusedly and looking in different directions. Finding a rapport between them. Jesse's sitting on the porch by himself when Gunther leaves the bar. Time to go home, I think. No, oh, you... Okay, that's a strong accent. I guess I always thought of him as, as completely gone native, but that works too. Well, if he moved from Germany to the United States after his teens, he would keep his accent for life, I think. Okay. Jesse asks when Gunther came over. After the war? More or less, yes. As a matter of fact, perhaps you had better arrest me. I came here to spy for the Nazis in World War II. <laughs> no, seriously. Good night, Sheriff Custer. And that is the end of the issue. Kind of a weird aberration of an issue. We got this serious, heartfelt flashback story, more of a piece with Angelville and the good old boys, in the middle of the Western pastiche salvation arc. And the flashback doesn't fill the issue, so there are these quick check-ins with other ongoing plots. Very Netflix. <laughs> Yeah, well, like we've often said of this book, it would be hard to read out of context. Single issues often don't do much on their own. Yeah, it's definitely a serialized story. And I think finding Christina gives a bit of a heart to this story. It gives Jesse a reason to stay and a reason to care. Yeah. It's interesting because, you know, Jesse is thinking bitterly about how he's tried his best to be a good person and his reward was that his two best friends, Cassidy and Tulip, betrayed him. But actually, he did kind of get a reward. I mean, this is kismet, you know? The chances of his ever meeting his mother again were... Astronomical. Yeah, right? astronomical. Yeah, that's a good point. He, At his lowest ebb, he finds something he thought he had lost permanently, and it contributes to giving him the heart to keep going on. Yeah. Yeah, this is a really touching couple of issues. But at the same time, we get plenty of action. You know, Jesse's beating up Quincannon boys. His mom fighting Jody and escaping with her life, barely. Yeah. What do you think of Quincannon? Well, like you said, Quincannon as a villain has a little bit of the ugly equals evil thing going on. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, he's short and physically ineffectual, which is played as a sort of shorthand for him being a petty tyrant. Right, yeah, which is fine, you know. Nobody likes petty tyrants. He also has uh, weird sexual proclivities, so once again we see that in a villainous context in Preacher. Yeah, once again, we've mentioned before, the series isn't exactly kink-shamey. Oh, the series is super kink-shamey. <laughs> oh, okay. I was going to say, it's not literally sexually exclusionary with regard to, like, gay and bi and trans people. It does, however, tend to portray the main character's straightforward heterosexual true love as the real thing, and other more niche behaviors as kind of weird and gross. Yeah. Tulip does handcuff Jesse that one time. But that wasn't really for they sex. Didn't <laughs> actually have sex. She just <laughs> <laughs> that was for revenge. Yeah, but yeah. I th the other thing about Quinn Cannon, and this isn't so much in this issue as in the second half of the story arc, 
is that he presents us with a racist villain and and gives Garth Ennis a chance to kind of write about racism. Yeah, that's a good point. But more on that in our next Preacher episode. Well, now it's time for a segment I like to call... Hey, Sean, read this! (laughs) Where I blindside Sean with a more recent Vertigo comic. This week, Sean is reading Joe the Barbarian by Grant Morrison and Sean Murphy. Is this brand new? No, this came out in 2010. Okay. Okay, so Sean just finished reading Joe the Barbarian number one, published by Vertigo in 2010. And before we started recording, he said, Okay. 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 <laughs> Listen, Billy Pilgrim has come unstuck in time. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> first of all, I want to say that this, I want to say that this comic book is about 50% Mass Effect 2 ad. It's got a sequence of character ads on alternating pages. Each of them says the same catchphrase, the tagline of the game, Fight for the Lost which is a little disappointing because Bioware does basically the best dialogue in video games and they don't have the characters described in their own words. But what can you do? Mm. Best part of the comic, really. That's being pretty mean. I wasn't even going to be that mean. No, I'm not. It's it's Grant Morrison and I wasn't going to be that mean. I'm not being that mean. What did you think? It's weird and I don't know where it's going. Okay. Well, why don't you tell the folks what happens a little bit? Yeah, okay. There's this kid, Joe, and he likes to draw. We see him drawing some kind of a future knight that looks cool. And he's driving with his mom, and he really doesn't get along with her at all. And he insists that he has a class trip to the veteran's hospital. No, it's not a hospital. They've already failed. They've already fucked up on that account pretty no, sorely. It's a graveyard. He has a class trip to the veteran's cemetery, and he does not actually have a class trip. He just wants to visit his dad's grave and be mad at his dad for dying and putting him in this situation. Right. And then he is bullied by bullies, and then a nice girl is nice to him. One of the bullies kicks his notebook out of his hand and says, Ha! <laughs> right? Which is probably the way that you would bully, you know, Jughead. <laughs> or you could make fun of him for being a werewolf. Oh, yeah, that's a, that's a whole other thing. That's a whole other animal. He goes home and he lives in this big, scary old house, which he seems to live in by himself. Hard to say. I mean, I guess he must live with his mom, because that's what he's grouchy about. But... I assumed his mom lived there. Yeah, but we don't we don't see her. We don't seem to see, like, her space in the house. He passes by a door into a dark, scary part of the house. Yeah. That could become important at some point. He goes all the way up to the attic, which is, I guess, where he lives. And he has a pet mouse, Jack. And there's a bunch of toys lined up here. Uh, including Batman and Superman. Right. This is a DC comic. DC, published. Yeah. yeah. He seems to like the house, even though he doesn't like his mom. Yes. He says, why should I have to live anywhere if it's not here? So he goes to sleep, and he says very, very pointedly, this is my room, this is my house, my house. As if he's trying to reassure himself of reality. Oh, I should probably mention, because this might be important, that his mom told him he had some candy in his bag and made damn sure he better eat that candy. Yeah, what was that about? Yeah, I wonder if the candy is actually, like, the drugs that make him hallucinate the rest of the story because they're in a cult or something. Oh, okay. Could be. So, reality warps around him and he finds himself in a fantasy realm. And it looks pretty cool. He does not think it's good that he's in a fantasy realm, though. He wakes up in his room and he wonders how long he's been away and he writes the note 
Danger Hypo. Hypo is the title of the first issue, but I still don't know what it means. Okay. Right now, he's sort of back in the fantasy world, and all of these people are coming toward him, and it's the night that he drew. And he says some stuff which is kind of amazing here. Deathcoats came, Playtown burns from Teddy Bear Alley to Starbase Heights, and the drains are choked with guts and stuffing. <laughs> yeah, which is like taking itself very seriously, but also kind of childish, kind of the way that children play with toys. Right. Right, and then we see this double-page spread of all of his toys have apparently come to him for help. They are clearly action figures at the same time. They are also clearly alive and people. And this fairy tale's on a one-way trip to hell. Batman is visible here. The Grey Ghost is with him. Those two go together well. Yeah. And at this point, Joe finds himself in his room again, except he's surrounded by his toys, and they do really seem to have walked up to him. And that's the end of the issue. Yeah. So that's weird shit. <laughs> it's a pretty strange one. It's not definitely not holding your hand, but it's not as surrealistically weird, as deliberately inaccessible as some other Grant Morrison series that we've talked about. You might be thinking of The Filth. Yeah. Yeah. It's unclear whether it's about an over-imaginative kid or a kid who's on drugs for some plotty reason, or whether real toys, live whether toys... actual magic. Yeah, yeah have, have something to do with it's the story. It's sort of here. a dark and twisted toy story. Yeah. Why is it called Joe the Barbarian? Yeah, I don't know. Maybe when he goes to Fantasy World, he'll become a powerful barbarian at some point. That's kind of a fantasy trope. It's interesting that this is the second Grant Morrison comic book that I'm aware of that the title is a play on Conan. Because Grant Morrison also writes The Savage Sword of Jesus Christ. <laughs> I had never heard that title before, but yeah. <laughs> um, this comic book devotes a lot of space to just art. We got a lot of pages with no text at all. Yeah. Sean Murphy's art is really good, but it's kind of underexplained because of that, I think. Yeah, that's right. There's a lot going on in terms of uh, visual storytelling. And as I said, it's not holding your hand. And I gotta wonder if the stuff that seems to be going on with like his school life, his classmates, is just there to set up that he has kind of a shitty life, or if that's actually going to become part of the story. Because it seems like it was done with such a deliberately shallow archetypal touch yeah. that we can't really be meant to care about those characters. Right. Yeah. Every story about kids in school has to have this bullying scene. Yeah. Yeah. The scenes when he gets to the fantasy world and finds out that like his toys or his figures of imaginary playtime, which may or may not be the same thing, need help, reminded me an awful lot of A Game of You. The Sandman yes. story. Yes. Yeah, it's like this is the world of his imagination, but it has gone wrong in the time that he's been away from it, and now it needs help to be set back on the right course. That's very much the tone and texture of A Game of You. Also reminds me of the Toyland arc in Fables, but in more of a shallow way, I guess. Okay, yeah, I don't know that Fables reference. Mm -hmm. What did you think was the best part of this issue? Uh, I thought the two-page spread when all of the toys came to him for help was really well done. A lot of recognizable characters, a lot of less recognizable, but also just kind of archetypal characters. And I thought a good job was done by Sean Murphy making them look, again, both like action figures and alive and vital. Right. Do you think you're going to read any more Joe the Barbarian? I'm not sorely tempted to. <laughs> well, all right. 
So, we've covered Preacher, issues 41 through 43. We've covered Joe the Barbarian, number one. Have we covered what they should look for next week? In our next Preacher episode, Jesse lays down Custer's Law. But first, join us next week as Sandman reaches the Inn at World's End. Vertigize is written and hosted by me and Sean. Our music is by Kelly Joyce Fielder. Sean produces the show. I handle social media. If you like our show, you should check out our website. That's vertigize.blueberry.com, B-L-U-B-R-R-Y. We've got lots more episodes, plus show notes on every episode. Hey, we would love to hear your thoughts and questions, so we really hope you want to reach us by sending us an email at vertigize at gmail.com. You can reach me on Twitter, at vertigize. Or me, at blankcastsean. And we also have a Facebook page, facebook.com slash vertigize. If you want to leave us a review on iTunes or Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else, we would appreciate that very much. Help spread the word, tell a friend. But as always, thanks for listening. Thanks, everybody. So I am wearing a Michigan State sweatshirt that Eric loaned me because I lost a bet, apparently. (laughs) Yeah, you know, you come here. No, I was just cold. come into my apartment, which is full of Michigan gear, wearing that. (laughs) You you come in here, and I give you this to wear, and you do. (laughs) How dare you? I don't remember things happening that way. I remember you were wearing that when you walked in. (laughs) And you said... And also a foam hat. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. Like Lee Corso. <laughs> You're like, what are you going to do about it? <laughs> <laughs>